this is Catherine Bartlett. Today on the Zebra Chronicles, we're going to be hearing from Maria Kafalis, a wife, mother, and sociologist whose life has been deeply impacted by rare diseases. Maria is a sociologist at St. Joseph's University and the mother of three children, including 10-year-old Cal. Cal has metachromatic leukodystrophy, a rare and serious inherited degenerative disease that is estimated to affect between 1 in 40,000 people and 1 in 160,000 people. Cal and others affected by MLD are deficient in the iral sulfatase A enzyme, which is responsible for breaking down fatty substances called sulfatides into harmless chemicals. People with MLD cannot break down these sulfatides, causing them to accumulate in the body and destroy myelin, the protective covering on the nerve fibers that enables communication between the nerves and the brain. Children with MLD typically start out healthy, reaching normal milestones. Cal learned to walk, talk, and feed herself like any other child, but all of those milestones were reversed within three months of being diagnosed at age two in 2012. The doctors at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, known as CHOP, told Maria that Cal would not live past the age of five. Now 10 years old, Cal receives hospice nursing care at home. An MLD diagnosis can be confirmed through an MRI, which reveals the classic pattern of myelin loss in individuals affected. MLD is currently incurable, but Maria and her family channeled their grief from Cal's diagnosis into starting the Calliope Joy Foundation, which raises money for improved care and further research into gene therapy, which has the potential to cure leukodystrophy and other genetic conditions. The Calliope Joy Foundation has raised more than $750,000 since its start in 2013. Maria has seen firsthand how the medical system has been impacted by COVID-19 but not just through her experience caring for her daughter. Sadly, Maria's husband, Pat, a sociologist at Rutgers University, died in April of this year after an eight-year battle with multiple myeloma, a rare form of cancer that affects approximately 100,000 Americans. Today, Maria is joining us to share both her daughter's story and her family's experience in the COVID-19 era medical world. Hi, Maria. So I was wondering if you could just start by sharing a little bit of your daughter's story. Sure. So MLD um, is in the same family as TSACs and Canavan disease. Um, it's a monogenic disorder, so it's caused by one broken gene. So she, um, you know, my husband and I were both, are both carriers, and so carriers aren't affected. But, we, but um, our children had a one in four chance of getting both of the broken genes, both, uh, you know, copy one, you know, one gene from each of us that was broken. So Cal, um, you know, of our three children, Cal was the only one to, to actually get the disease. Um, and the disease is uh, a degenerative disorder. So at birth, the children look beautiful and healthy and totally great. Um, and then by the age of two, they're usually diagnosed once they start falling. Um, and, and losing milestones. And, you know, for a lot of metabolic neurogenitive disorders, you know, always, a, a neurologist once said to me, um, if a kid's regressing, get them some testing. 
So that's like a like a red flag. The minute you see a kid start losing stuff, like losing the ability to walk or losing the ability to talk, that's a very, very bad sign. Um, and so uh, she was diagnosed, actually. Um, she was losing her balance. We brought her in to CHOP for an MRI um, because her pediatrician finally realized this is really scary and serious. It took two days. Um, you know, the MRI just showed severe demyelination that, you know, so the brain has gray matter and white matter, and white matter is also called myelin, and myelin is like the connected tissue. So if, if gray matter is like a computer's hard, uh, you know, storage and hardware, um, myelin is like the wiring in the computer. So the wiring in, in her brain was just disintegrating. Wow. And you could see it just lit up on the MRI. So and in healthy kids' MRI, it would have looked gray and, and it would have been gray and kind of black and hers was all white, like a light bulb. And um, she was given uh, three years to live after symptom onset. And she's now, it's been actually eight years. Uh, it, will be, it will be eight years tomorrow, uh, next month, July 5th. Um, 2012. So she has defied the statistical predictions. Um, well, she no, she's overperformed, but she didn't defy them. That's an accurate way of describing it. She's in the top third percentile of outcomes. So we're very lucky in that sense. Wow, that's amazing. And I know MLD is incurable, but what does Cal's care look like? Uh, well, it's interesting. Like, so, so, um, the children decline precipitously, usually upon diagnosis. So they, like, within three months of her initial diagnosis, she lost the ability to walk and talk. And um, then they stabilize, um, and they all need feeding tubes. Um, and so Cal went from being able to walk and talk, and she was off. We knew something was wrong, but we thought it was you know, something we could fix. Um, but now she takes about 12 medications every single day to manage spasticity, seizure activity. Um, the disease attacks their gut. It makes, them, it makes their gut very sluggish and slow. Um, so, you know, I think that they, um, so like um, a big part of our job is making her pee and poop every day and make sure she can eat to get enough nutrition. Um, and so she has nurses 12 hours a day and then, her nurses leave at 10, and I do the 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift. No. Um, so she's on monitors every night, and uh, she's still on remission. She doesn't generally need oxygen or CPAP unless she's sick. And so she's had so she has nursing care from 7 a.m. to 10 a.m. and 10 p.m. And then I do the 10 p.m. to to 7 a.m. shift every single night. And so my husband Pat used to do a lot of her care. Um, you know, he was like three nurses, so it's now me, and it's, it's, I mean, she's fabulous, she's an amazing kid, and I'm very lucky to have the support, and I guess, you know, the pandemic in some sense doesn't really, you know, there's no place for me to go, but, um, it's a little hard to sort of imagine that I really can't ever leave the house past 5 p.m., Wow. because I have to, so the 5 p.m. shift becomes AIDS. And AIDS can't give medications, so I can't leave. So, like, 
know, I think one of the hardest things for me has been the things like I can't take my son to his basketball games or I can't drive my daughter to, to, to drop her off for college and things like that. So, wow. you, know, you know, that's that. And I'm lucky. And that's the scary thing. I'm lucky. I have nursing care. Could be worse. And I know you run um, a foundation in support of mm-hmm. um, your daughter and other MLD patients. Um, could you tell me a little bit about um, that foundation and your advocacy work? Oh, sure. So a, a year after my daughter's diagnosis, we started the foundation. And um, it was, I think, honestly, kind of therapy more than anything else. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I was really struggling in particular. I think my kids were struggling and we wanted to do something. And rather than feel sorry for herself and feel sorry for Cal and wait for her to die, I mean, I think the first, like, for the first two years, I was sort of waiting for her to die because they'd been telling me that she was going to die. Um, and so when she didn't die, I sort of like, well, I need to pivot. You know, this sort of waiting for her to die strategy is not going to work. So we did our first fundraiser, um, and we sold cupcakes because my son was like nine at the time, and he had said, we'll sell a million cupcakes. It was just an excuse to eat cupcakes, I think, for him. And we'll say a million cupcakes and we'll make a million dollars. And so we did our first cupcake challenge and that was fun. It was a, like a family fun day and kids make cupcakes. And, we, and um, so we had like a kid's cupcake bake-off and local bakeries did dairy cupcakes. And it was just kind of a fun fundraiser. But it was really therapeutic and, and um, I think we were in the right place at the right time. The first event raised, I think, $9,000. We were so proud of ourselves. Um, but wow. at the time we started fundraising, there were also some really exciting breakthroughs for gene therapy. Um, and that really, our fundraising just, I think we just got this dumb luck. So we, we start doing this work at the very time gene therapy start hitting clinical trial stages and shop, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, um, starts to realize that this is a disease that is no longer going to be this forgotten orphan disease. It's going to be right at the epicenter of gene therapy revolution. And we were able to leverage our work to convince CHOP to launch a leukodystrophy center of excellence. And that really changed everything. So when CHOP said, we are going to devote a whole century to leukodystrophy because we believe that gene therapy is coming and these children are not going to die. And CHOP you know, as a premier hospital, they had the resources and the money and the connections to gene therapy. That just kind of blew everything up. And and so when my daughter was diagnosed in 2012, there were two doctors and no research going on at CHOP, nothing in those history. It was, even at CHOP, it was an afterthought. It was an interesting orphan disease that a couple of doctors looked at. Now, with the Ministry Center of Excellence, they have a staff of about 35 people, nine clinical trials, and they just got a $5 million NIH grant. Uh, not to mention that there's like probably half a billion dollars worth of biotech money flooding into the industry space for gene therapy. Um, so, you know, I think one of the great uncertainties moving forward is the hard part of developing meaningful treatments that will save these children's lives are here. They exist. There's a bunch of gene therapies, including for my daughter's disease, which won't help her, but will save other children's lives. But now you wonder who's going to pay for it. And, um, I mean, I always use the example of 
when they do the first heart transplant or when they do the first bone marrow transplant. No, the New York Times did not lead, because I'm old enough to remember those things. When those breakthroughs happened, no one in the national media said, can we afford to do heart transplants? Can we afford to do bone marrow transplants? But now, the biggest breakthroughs for these disorders, which are making it possible for kids who should be dead to you know, lead remarkably normal lives, um, the first thing in the New York Times op-ed editorial is, can we afford gene therapy? We now live in a world where, not, not, it's not that we lack the science, we, we figure out the science, but we can't figure out the math. Yeah. Right? That's, and that's terrifying to me. That's absolutely terrifying to me. And, and the idea that you know, basically Medicaid and health insurance companies get to decide who lives and who dies. Mm-hmm. Because Medicaid uh, will re- is the you know when you have a medically complex child, Med- Medicaid decides who gets gene therapy because your insurance company won't co- cover all of it. So Medicaid will come in, and so mid-level Medicaid bureaucrats are deciding who gets CAR T cell or gene therapy or or heart transplant, and who doesn't. It's horrible, and that's a, it's terrifying. I mean. We can't afford to do it, and therefore you don't get it. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, so you, you see these breakthroughs in gene therapy, you see these breakthroughs for rare diseases, and the biggest problem we have is cost access. And this crisis has put even more pressure on the system. And really, you know, and with a complete vacuum of leadership. Kind of going off that, how has um, COVID-19 kind of affected Cow's care. Um, and so, you know, when you have a child with this very specialized disease, unless you get in a car or get on a plane, which is very difficult to do with a sick baby, yeah. um, you often can't see specialists. So for years and years and years, you know, our doctors would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we can't help you. You have to come to our practice. Well, that, that has changed. COVID has solved that problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, telemedicine has taken over. Um, so that's good news. Um, no one exactly knows what it is yet. Like they don't, the insurance companies don't know how to bill it. The hospitals don't know how to bill it. The doctors love it. The doctors love it. The doctors love the fact that they can now basically automatically practice in 50 states and see children in their home and not have to worry about, you know, getting people into hospitals. So that's been one fabulous outcome for the rare disease community. Um, the, the, the terrifying thing is, I think, you know, the, the more terrifying stuff is that no one's going to the hospital. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that across the board for all diseases, like heart attacks and strokes. But um, I think now, you know, I am absolutely terrified. I, you know, every year at Cal, my daughter has a checkup at CHOP. And I don't know when the clinic's going to reopen, uh, but even if it reopens tomorrow, I don't want to go. Yeah, of course. I have no. I mean, it was always scary going to the hospital because you always were afraid you'd pick up a bug. Um, but COVID is terrifying, and you know the other thing that you think about with COVID personally is that you know for a child who is as advanced with her disease as cow, um, I don't know how much they would fight for her, right? Yeah. I mean, if there was a, a, an outbreak, I think that, I think there's a, 
a great kind of unspoken terror in the community about, well, if she showed up at the hospital and there was a shortage of vents, she'd not, she would she even get a vent. Right? Yeah. And, um, and so that kind of leaves me in this situation. And then if she was admitted, I would have to, now for adult COVID patients, actually all adult patients, they won't let you in the hospital right now. Um, so you have to leave people in the hospital on their own. For pediatric patients, they do allow one parent in. But once I was in, I'm not getting out, right? Yeah. I would not be able to go home. So I would basically, if Cal was admitted tomorrow to CHOP, to the ICU, I would be quarantined with her, which would mean that my children were on their own, that my 17-year-old yeah. son would be basically on his own at home. Yeah. Wow. Um, which is terrifying. So part of me says, I don't want to go to the hospital, right? I, I have, I've been sitting around thinking, you know, if she gets COVID, do I even go into the ICU? Yeah. Because she's, a, she, she's great right now, but, you know, I mean, honestly, she, I, I have experienced um, in 2018, she actually was in the ICU for coronavirus, not COVID-19, just a run-of-the-mill coronavirus yeah and she was intubated then i mean i saw what happened last time it's a miracle she survived that last two years ago so would i i think families like me would be kind of in the situation like do we just not go in do we just take our chances at home um and quarantine my other children and because i have nursing care at home um she has several devices that lead up so, like, a vent, a vent is the most extreme, you know, in, intrusive breathing device, right? Um, but below that, you have BiPAP machines and you have CPAP. Now, CPAP is, like, very common. Probably, you know, maybe your parents use CPAP. CPAP is, like, you know, it forces air through the, na- uh, through the nose and a lot of people with heart conditions use. So, CPAP is a pretty common machine. Cal currently has CPAP at home. I could, uh, if she got very sick, I might ask um, for her medical team to give us BiPAP at home, right? To yeah. BiPAP at home. But I, but if she got to the point where she needed a vent, I don't know if we would go in. Yeah. Honestly. I, 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 I have no idea. I really can't process that question. But I, I, I you know, I know you know that my, my husband died recently. So yeah. I'm not in any great rush to sort of delve into any more people dying. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, my experience with my husband made me. COVID is bad. I mean, COVID is um, on a on a grander level that's beyond rare diseases. I think that it, you know, from my experience, when I when I went to Abramson and Penn for my husband's treatment, it was astounding to me how the entire healthcare system had just basically collapsed. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about, I know I read your article, or the article you were quoted in, in the Times, but could you talk a little bit about your uh, yeah, husband's yeah. Um, story? So what happened, you know, what was amazing leading up to those weeks was the fact that what ha- they, they went through this kind of remarkable emergency protocol, right? Yeah. And they, um, they basically shut down all non-essential services, which is pretty much everything, except the emergency room, 
Um, they shut down all the clinics, right? They shut down everything. Yeah. Um, and then they started. Um, so, for example, when you went to oncology, now you would not think con- con- cancer treatment is not essential, but what they did was they moved all the cancer treatments to home infusion. So basically they were doing everything at home that they would normally do in the hospital. Um, and that was terrifying because if you ever have cancer treatment, you know, it's actually a pretty elaborate thing. People come, they check your vitals, they make sure you're responding well to the treatment. That was not possible. That was now being done at home. Um, and so they had to basically farm out, you know, this massive uh, inpatient treatment program to people's homes. And they didn't have, I mean, there was always a capacity to do home infusion. It was not designed to take every single patient that they had in Abramson. Yeah. So they were struggling for resources. They were struggling for, you know, nurses to take care of all the patients. Um, they were struggling to get supplies. And then early on, you know, they were rationing out blood, which became, you know, and, and, and that was like, that was deeply frustrating because they didn't need ration blood because there was no one having surgeries anymore and there was no one having car accidents. So they made all these kind of decisions on hypotheticals like, oh, get a ration blood. Well, COVID patients didn't need blood um, in particular more than anyone else. So they were like rationing out my, my husband's blood and platelets. And, they were, and someone decided, well, unless your number hits below seven, you don't need platelets and blood. Well, he was really sick. And so you have these like senior level administrators who had no bed experience who were making decisions in, in you know, office conference rooms. They were just like, okay, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to shut yeah. down that division, we're going to shut down that division. Neurologists were being non-essential. Um, and, the, um, and the oncology clinic, so my, my husband's oncologist, who should have been overseeing his care, was like doing everything by remote, by phone. Because he would only come in once a week, wow. and he was only and only the residents were handling it, and medical students because all the attendings had gone home. They didn't want to be there. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it was. I mean, I it, it was like a world class hospital had been transformed into a field hospital in Syria, in a war zone. That's the best way to describe it. Wow. It was horrifying, and, and and it happened in three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't take very long for. The University of Pennsylvania's healthcare system to collapse. I mean, and so you know, I when I did that article for the Times, so many people wrote to me, and they said, "Oh, yeah, that's happening. To I have a biopsy that I'm waiting on, but a, a biopsy was not, you know, a biopsy for a possible melanoma was not seen as an emergent situation. People were were waiting to get follow up PET scans. Um, people were waiting to." You know, their treatment had been moved home. They couldn't see their oncologist anymore. I mean, it was it was truly terrifying. And um, and, and the, the, you know, and as as the as the daughter of a sociologist, you can appreciate this. You know, so I was sitting there like a, a sociologist thinking about this, and I kept thinking the main problem I saw was that instead of being concerned with protecting patients, like normally my husband's doctor, their main priority is. How do we make Pat better, right? Or how do we make Cal better? Yeah. Now their main concern was how do we protect the healthcare system? How do we protect the hospital? How 
do we make sure we have enough beds? So suddenly all the decisions were being now viewed through the lens of how do we protect the healthcare system from this epidemic as opposed to what's best for the patient being their primary concern. And then you had doctors who were, I think, afraid for themselves, right, their own safety. Yeah. Who were now distracted by possible exposure to COVID and were like, oh, I'm not coming in. They, I mean, the doctors are terrified. I mean, they're human too. They don't want to get sick. They don't want to get their children sick. So they didn't want to come in. And, you, you know, I, I was celebrating telemedicine, but I think that when you're in an acute situation, when you're, when you're dying, it's really hard to phone that in. It's, it's one thing to do telemedicine for, you know, an exam, a checkup, reading some blood work. But if, if this is an emergent situation, you have to make very quick decisions and you're doing it by your, from your cell phone, yeah. by looking at an epic screen, based on notes from a resident, and you're not in the room. And in the end, you know, with my husband, after eight years of treatment, he never saw his oncologist again. Wow. I'm so sorry. Oh. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's, it still astounds me. I don't think I'll ever get over it. I thought I'd seen a lot. I mean, I had a, a medically complex kid. I've been in the ICU on more than one occasion. I've seen people code. I've seen, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff over the years. Um, but the last four months were remarkable. Do you have any, like, thoughts on um, what the process for kind of getting things back back on track again should look like or how <laughs> long that'll take? I mean, I think that, you know, uh, not that clever. Um, you know, I, I think... I think that what's happened is that the entire system is broken and it now needs to be rebuilt, rebuilt right? It yeah. needs to be completely reimagined. And um, I hope, I hope that they are, have the courage to look at what went wrong and make sure it doesn't happen again. And I mean, there's a paradox, right, of a multi-billion dollar industry that is now collapsing in on itself. Yeah. That the hospitals are gonna be laying off people because they didn't, quote, make any money, right? They didn't, yeah. They, they're not making, they're losing millions and billions of dollars every single day that they shut down elective procedures. Yeah. Um, so, the hospitals, paradoxically, are even in worse shape than they were before, um, and I and you wonder. Certainly, I mean, right now there's no national leadership. There's no this, there's no plan to bail out hospitals. But I mean, I I, I kind of left the thing the experience thinking that medicine's going to be completely transformed, and who's going to decide what it looks like? I mean, I think right now, if you talk to the doctors, they're sort of it's, it's called design build when you when you build something while you're you know it's like trying to fly a plane while you're, you're building one uh, yeah. so I think right now they have, they're trying to rebuild the system and um, it's not very strategic or systematic they're simply just like making decisions because they have to reopen 
Yeah. They have to bring in money, right? They need to bring in money. So they're going to rely on telemedicine. But, I mean, how do you convince people to come into the hospital? How do you convince people like me? I, I, I think that it will be um, exceedingly difficult to convince people to, well, you can't go back to normal. So if Pat was a cancer patient, and he was still alive, right? Yeah. I, I have no idea. I can't imagine what oncology treatment would look like, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't, how, do you, how do you do social distancing? How do you, um, I mean, one example that someone gave me was like, you know, um, you know, the, the hospitals were designed not to keep people six feet apart from each other, and they were designed to keep as many patients moving in as quickly as possible um, to make money. I mean, it's all about making money. So now uh, they're going to have to figure out another way to survive. And so does that does that leave an opening for, for, for Medicare for all? I mean, I think that Medi- Medicare for all makes a hell of a lot more sense now post-COVID than it did before. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, think, I think you're going to have to bail out the hospitals. And then where does that leave the healthcare industry? I mean, the healthcare industry, I mean, the, healthcare, the health insurance industry, I mean, the health insurance industry, um, their whole model, right, is making money off procedures. Yeah. So where are they in this? And they're not going to go quietly into the night and say, yeah, we didn't make much money. You know, in one sense, they are happy, right, that they didn't have to spend money because we were all paying for premiums while none of us were going to the hospital, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, but they'll be in a, so they're happy when people don't go to the hospital. Um, and other people pick up the bill, but I, you know, you wonder what their role will be in, like, you know, how will they, how will they construct billing around telemedicine? How will they, um, figure out a way for the hospitals to make money? How, you know, if you can't go back to normal, if people aren't going to the hospital and the hospitals can't charge for procedures, I mean, I mean, honestly, and, and then I don't know how we get into a situation where, you know, kids like Cal or cancer patients are not essential. Yeah, it's horrible. You know, horrible, horrible. And, and how do you rebuild trust when, like, I had to ask my doctor, so if Cal got sick, would you even try to save her? Would you even try? Can't even imagine. So, Um, I think they would say, yeah, I think they would say, well, we don't have that many COVID pediatric patients, so we're probably okay. But it's like, well, that's not a very reassuring answer. Yeah. You have a lot of patients. Yeah, it's very scary. It's always nice to end on a hopeful note, but Maria Kafalis reminds us that our broken and inefficient healthcare system has real consequences. Pain, insufficient and inaccessible care, and premature death. Clearly, reform is needed, and educating others is an important first step. To learn more about leukodystrophy and Maria's work as a rare disease activist, check out the Calliope Joy Foundation at www dot the calliopejoyfoundation.org. See you next time on the Zebra Chronicles.